Welcome back to the Additive Snack Podcast. I'm your host, Fabian Allerfeld, coming to you from freezing cold Austin, Texas today. Today, we're venturing into a very exciting realm of additive manufacturing, some that even consumers can see from time to time, and that is the innovative and intricate world of digital foam, really an evolution of polymer lattice structures. Now, in the past, developing applications for polymer lattice structures, especially for performance applications, has been quite challenging, uh, if we're being honest. You need to consider many different aspects from design all the way into printing and post-processing, and not to even forget about materials. And all of these parts and aspects of the value chain also influence each other. And that gets complex real quick. Now, a few key players... Uh, the ones that we have on this podcast today out of the industry came together and hopefully more will join this initiative to form the Digital Foam Architects Network. This network intends to increase accessibility, scalability, and really speed of development for especially performance-based data structures. And we've invited some of the brightest minds in that space to today's episode. So joining us today, we have Pierre Gonetin from Arkema. He's a key account and business development manager. We have Mike Shore, the general manager at Dimension. Nick Florek, the CEO of General Lattice. And we have Dr. Dave Kuzminski, senior consultant at EOS and expert in polymer lattice structures here. So without further delay, welcome you all to Additive Snack. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So this is actually the... First true panel discussion we've done on Additive Snack. So we're giving this a shot and I'm really excited for it because I think we're going to have some really, really interesting conversations. But before we dive into the intricacies of uh, the whole process of developing digital form applications, I want to ask you a question, Nick, and that is, can you actually take us back a little bit into the history of data structures and additive manufacturing and possibly even explain some of the key terminologies that we'll talk about today to make sure our listeners are familiar with uh, the concept. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, thanks for having uh, myself and General Addis on. I think this is a great panel to have considering we have every aspect of what you know really makes up uh, digital foam, right? So you have the design component, General Addis you know, hammers that out, EOS with the hardware, Arkema, the materials, and uh, Dimension with the post-processing. I think it's really important to kind of Start off by mentioning it takes all of these things to really uh, develop digital materials. Everyone kind of needs to do their own part to really uh, play together and develop successful applications. So thanks for setting this up. Um, but yeah, to kind of talk a little bit about the history of lattice structures, they've really been a fundamental component of 3D printing from the onset. I mean, you think mm -hmm. back to the early days of more simple technology like an FDM printer, um, you need supports, right? So Inherently, lattice structures, uh, you know, are acting in in the way of, of supports out of the kind of first early use cases. But um, when you look at additive in general, there's kind of three main ingredients uh, for success from a design aspect in terms of you know, what works well for production. How do you add value? How do you really enhance the application? And, and we kind of at General Lattice think of those three ingredients as using additive to do things like part consolidation. Um, using additive for things like mass customization and personalization and using it for, uh, you know, increased design freedom. And so that's really where kind of 
uh, the lattice structure kind of plays its part. And so these ingredients, I think, are very uh, much meant to be mixed and interchanged. And, you know, hopefully the ideal application has a, a bit of everything. Um, but when you look at uh, lattice structures, there's kind of three main categories that, that we look at. There's uh, beam-based lattice structures, so kind of you're just beam and nodes that you're connecting in various uh, techniques. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, TPMS-based lattice structures, which stands for triply periodic minimal surface. So these are unique geometries that are um, periodically repeating, um, and they bring a lot of really interesting properties along with them. And then there's uh, plate-based lattice structures, which are more just planar um, plates that are arranged in different orientations. And these can be uh, 3D or more of like two and a half D, like a honeycomb sort of structure. So um, mm -hmm. those are the main categories that we really look at. And then the last thing I'll kind of touch on at a high level is the different methodologies for generating lattice structures. Um, you can use traditional uh, boundary representations within a normal CAD platform. Uh, you can use mesh-based generation methods, and then uh, a newer uh, form of design, uh, implicit, which uh, can have some tremendous aspects in terms of speed. So you've got to always think about data and, and you know how complex these lattice structures are and how can we really solve the data challenge from a, both a design and actually getting the file to the printer perspective. So um, kind of a lot of different things to think about there, but the last thing I'll mention is just kind of some high-level uh, application spaces or benefits mm -hmm. of a lot of structures. So um, the easiest one that most people probably think of is light weighting uh, for different, um, uh, you know, strength uh, to weight optimizations. Um, mm -hmm. Energy absorption is another really exciting one, especially in the polymer space. So how can we start to uh, create better performing foams, for instance? And then when you get into metals and more rigid materials, there's really interesting applications within thermal management, uh, RF applications. I think, you know, really lattice structures exist everywhere in nature. You see them under a microscope. And what we're trying to do is really play those up to a bit more of a macro level than, than what you see under the microscope. And, and how can we start to create these, you know, new generation of materials that really involve design, not just uh, at the micro level. So, yeah. Awesome. I think this, this gave us a really good overview not only of the potential of lattices and additive, but also inherently of the complexity of lattice structures. And I just remembered this uh, as you were uh, speaking, Nick. Dave, a while back, wrote a blog article called Put Some Lattice on It, uh, kind of uh, teasing the industry a little bit, where we saw a while back everybody just adding lattice structures for Sometimes valid reasons and sometimes not valid reasons. It was almost a, a little bit of a trend to showcase visibly the potential of, of additive, but sometimes not really with a with a high value on it. And Dave, now you've been in the additive industry for a while, not only at OEMs, but also at users of additive manufacturing technologies. And you've now been through various programs where we've seen, prior to the approach we're trying to take now with a digital foam network, the conventional way of developing lattice structure applications. Can you take us through the typical or previous value chain and process steps that somebody had to take in order to get to an application that hits the performance markers they're trying to achieve? Yeah, sure. Let me say thank you as well, Fabian, to having me on today as well to the rest of the group. Uh, I think it, as Nick already touched upon, uh, you're just starting to see if you don't already 
have experienced the complexity, right? So Nick just touched on one one point on the star, if you will, right? So as as the rest of the group talks today, I think it starts to highlight some of the intention and purpose around lowering that barrier. A few other points you mentioned, yeah, uh, that that blog article title was if you were a Portlandia fan years ago uh, with putting a bird on it. My prior roles and kind of just looking back, it felt like that's everybody wanted to do instead of putting a bird on it. They just wanted to put a lattice on it, which, you know, in the early introduction of that concept in additive, you know, some of the early movers, I mean, you definitely get the visual demonstration. You get the awe. You also get the performance opportunities. I think anybody who then tried to go down that path, Mike also has a unique background and history with that as well. Like the reality of making that cross the finish line is certainly not to be understated. Um, as you mentioned uh, previously, uh, I worked for a military helmet uh, outfitter. Uh, Gentex is the name in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. And when I was brought on there right after my PhD work, one of the things they asked me to do, which is, I think, common for a lot of R&D leaders in their organizations was, you know, go go innovate on our product line, right? Whether it's uh, traditional foam or just some sort of performance feature and, and uh, immediately additive is one of the pathways that you pursue. So I have a, a real experience being on the other side of this conversation and being overwhelmed also by all of the acronyms. I know when I first approached it, everything was an acronym, EOS, HP, SLM. It was kind of, you know, can't we use real words uh, in this space, right? So appreciate, you know, the Arkhamas and the uh, dimensions of the world using a full name. But I went down that path in each pathway in some ways is its own, own challenging endeavor. There are times where you feel like you're making progress, um, you know, just working through the uh, design or software aspect. And then you get to the next step and you realize there's different file conversions. Technologies handle different strategies differently, powder-based, you know, resin-based. Uh, then the demands of the post-processing on each of those technologies. And it starts to get quite overwhelming to really down-select when really, you know, your job in as the engineer or as the product developer in that organization is you just need your product to make a leap forward. You don't want to, you don't need to, you often don't don't have the bandwidth to become an expert in computational design, an expert in thermoplastic or thermoset chemistry, an expert in vapor polishing, color. I've become a color scientist now from working with Mike, you know, the different shades of purple and brown. It's just like, it's incredible. And you can see how eventually, you know, and a lot of organizations don't have a team of 10, 20 engineers working on this on the daily. You know, those organizations are unique. And I think are, there's a reason why they're the industry leaders. But a lot of times it comes down to one or two passionate individuals who are driving these things forward. And so now that I'm on this side, if you want to use that kind of metaphor, is I can empathize and understand. And really, it's our job to help answer the questions they're asking and even help them become aware of the questions they're not even aware yet they need to have answers to. And really, the phrase I come back to is just lower that barrier. And then if you think about the whole value chain, just like you said, you know, each step can bring a lot of value in its own way, and even just be optimized in a way that it can, you know, maybe be less of the pain point in the process, you know, starting from the available kind of materials, 
to then how those materials influence what kind of models and, you know, maybe simulation aspect or like lattice selection, how those lattice parameters can influence printability. And then all the way down and Mike is living. This is often, unfortunately, the post-processing step is sometimes one of the last things considered when really that can be one of the most influential first impact uh, components of the experience. And then if we have to make a tweak to something, we have to start all back over. So if the material isn't smoothing the way that, or kind of providing a finish that they want or the lattice design and the way that it's being finalized. So I think one of the intentions of the digital foam network is, is we're, we're becoming more aware of how up and down the whole value chain, there's questions that need to be understood up front. And then really it's our job to act. I kind of think of like a spider web network to help constantly asking questions back and forth because each application or each customer is often its own uh, unique uh, snowflake, if you want to call it that, where, which is wonderful because they have their own specific um, space that they're exploring, but we all often don't have all of the questions already answered. So it's this team here that needs to work together, huddle up and say, okay, this is what we're seeing in this upfront, upfront part. Or if it's a brand new material, How's it going to influence everybody's uh, technical insight all the way down that chain? In some ways, it's extremely fun. I think as, as an engineer, this is why you get to wake up in the morning and it, it doesn't get boring. But then at the end of the day, that same engineer gets a little bit, you can be frustrating or challenging. You feel like, am I making progress? Am I just creating more challenges? Am I just creating more questions? And again, I think that's where this network is designed to focus all of that, demonstrate we've done this before and help become advisors up and down the process for anybody. And it's going to continue to evolve as the industry uh, continues. You know, where it is today is amazing from where it was five or 10 years ago. And it's almost mind-boggling to think where it's going to be in five or 10 years from now, the rate at which technology is really evolving uh, that we see today. Thank you for, for that overview. I think that's, you know, it, it's very important to understand where, where we were before in order to, to have this conversation on uh, what this network and, and collaborative approach uh, where that can take us. And, you know, really what we're, what, what you're trying or what you are saying, if I wanted to summarize it is to, we're shifting away from selecting a type of lattice, any of the lattices that Nick, you, you mentioned in the beginning, and then from there on working our way towards the application, towards the material, towards the post-processing, but taking an inverse design approach where we focus entirely on the final properties that we're trying to achieve and then move our way forward from there. Now, from an application developer approach, and now this question is more of an open question to whoever wants to take it, and we can even touch a few points here. Before we dive deeper into each section of all of all of your expertises, how does this change the way now that we, we think about developing applications in the space of lattices uh, compared to the past? Take a, a quick stab at it. I think like really what we're trying to do as a group here with the people, you know, all the different entities that are on um, today's podcast is we're trying to simplify things for the end user, right? I think a lot of times as Dave kind of already touched on, the end user doesn't necessarily care so much about, is this a TPMS lattice? Is this a beam based lattice? Is what's the node size? What's the strut size, right? Like, what they care is, does it accomplish the end goal that I need it to achieve? And 
And does it do it better than my existing solution today? And so I think by trying to work collaboratively, inverse that design challenge, allow the end user to really say, these are the, the, the criteria that I'm looking for from a performance standpoint, and then have a solution that's kind of ready to go or a very streamlined approach on how that's going to be developed, I think is really what we're trying to do to drive adoption you know, as a as a collaborative group here and, and just kind of make that easier and more digestible for the company to say, hey, this is a no brainer. Let's jump right in and and, and start to adopt AM and these next generation uh, materials that we're looking at. Yeah, huge reduction in hurdles. Right? I, I remember they've been we had an intern, Paula Claris, who's now at uh, Cumberland Additive. She looked into various lattice structures and, uh, and, and different uh, shapes and forms and Printed all these pucks and tested all these pucks and and trying to figure out which which puck really meets the performance criteria that I'm that I'm trying to hit. That's a lot of effort uh, to to go into an application development. So is that uh, really something that we're or that all of us really can alleviate and simplify uh, moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I'm, what where I'd like to see us get to really, and from if you come at it from a customer's perspective is like you said thinking on the back end they they come with some performance set of requirements from a durability perspective from a performance perspective from an appearance perspective and can we already identify what a solution space is what i like to use the funny metaphor and i realize this is now being on this end is i think where we're trying to get to is at the moment we're a restaurant that when you walk in we have a long list of ingredients for you, but we don't really tell you what those ingredients can make. So instead of saying we have this sandwich and that sandwich and that sandwich, which is how we're used to walking into a restaurant, we're saying we've got bread, we've got meat, we've got cheese, we've got sauce, we've got lettuce, right? Which is basically like we've got materials, we've got lattices, we've got printing parameters, right? We've got finishing techniques, which is like helpful. And maybe, you know, if you're an expert, and again, we can go down that whole restaurant kind of metaphor later, but that's kind of how I feel too, is really what this group here is in charge of is how can we actually create, you know, finished kind of recipes or targeted solutions for application spaces. And I feel like we've uncovered, you know, based on certain projects or applications that have gotten across the finish line, we understand some of those spaces, but I feel like it's very linear. I don't know that we have really kind of developed comprehensive, you know, 3D solution space around that. I think that's where we all would like to get to. So kind of when I think of the inverse way, I think of how can we create really like this menu type experience and then everybody else figures out on the back end how, how you're going to make it as opposed to everything is a build your own pizza. Everything is a build your own yeah. uh, whatever it is, which is just, um, which can be overwhelming. Yeah, if this is the first time you meet Dave, that would not be a conversation with Dave without a metaphor in that space, which uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of. So let's stay with that, actually. So part of that sandwich uh, is obviously the meat or the tofu, whatever uh, you prefer, but it's also how you prepare it, right? What are the post-processing steps of, uh, of the griddle? Uh, and I want to hear a bit more from uh, Pierre and from Mike, because th those are such key ingredients to a digital form application, which is the material, which is the post-processing to really achieve a visual and a performance uh, of the of the the part surface itself. Uh, starting with you, Pierre. You know, materials and additive manufacturing kind of evolved from conventional materials. We we just took what we had in conventional manufacturing and 
and initially tried to copy that into additive. What does the material landscape look like today? How have we transitioned conventional materials into additive manufacturing? And what are some of the unique properties digital foam applications require that may need us to change and tweak some of the, the polymer recipes uh, that we have today? That's a large question, uh, definitely. But uh, it's a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. 100%. No, but first, uh, thank you very much, Fabian, for for having uh, Arkema on this uh, on this uh, great panel today. Maybe on on the last comment, you mentioned the inverse design, uh, where we can play at the mar uh, I would say at the material level. Uh, this is also very important in this collaborative space, uh, as Nick mentioned. Uh, we have a role which is also to to enable that everybody has the right data in the in the models to ensure that uh, the design. Uh, the results from the design and from the simulations, they match the reality, basically. So in the end, uh, everybody wants to simplify the life of end users, but uh, we need first relevant data. Whenever you put uh, the right data in a model, uh, you get better results. So uh, at, at the very beginning in, in material and polymer science, this is key to to, to have this, uh, this very strong uh, background. And back to your question, which is, uh, which is large, uh, basically, uh, uh, Yeah, maybe I can answer with the the, the, the Arkema journey on uh, on polymers and in uh, additive manufacturing. Um, I would say that first uh, at at the global level, Arkema we are we are glad to manufacture polymers that are versatile uh, in the sense that they can be processed in many processing technologies like uh, extrusion, uh, injection molding, roto molding, and now 3D printing too. Um, and If we try to to have a focus and go more into details, uh, if we focus on a, on a polymer which is well known in uh, in AM, like which is our flagship polymer for for 3D, which is polyamide 11, for instance, uh, there is a great legacy. Uh, as you mentioned, polymers they have been here in the in the world for for a long time, but for for 3D they are more recent. Uh, polyamide 11 was invented uh, more than 70 years ago, uh, 1947. So it's uh, it, It's it's nothing new, but for 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 AM it's quite uh, it's quite young, um, and it has been a reference for uh, in the world of engineering plastics for for a long time because of uh, high performance. Uh, I would I, I, I won't go into this uh, this kind of detail. Uh, it's also well, well known because it's a bio-based polymer, but it's not uh, that simple to go from the pellets that, uh, that 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 we sell for injection molding to a powder, which is uh, basically the The, the major use in uh, powder bed fusion technologies in uh, SLS or MJF. Sorry to, to use acronyms, uh, Dave, uh, on that. But um, the first question for us is uh, how do you manufacture basically the, the powder? Uh, and the key question uh, when we start uh, development like that is uh, what kind of powder do you want to, to manufacture? Uh, do you, how do you characterize it? Uh, is it With a morphology, is it with a granulometry, with a particle size distribution? Is it via the surface, uh, specific surface area? Is it with the density of the powder itself? So there are uh, key uh, properties of the powder itself, but we have to relate them to correlate with the part properties uh, in the end because uh, what we want uh, is that uh, we need to ensure that. Uh, That the applicative properties are, are good. Does it process well? Uh, does it allow the end user to produce uh, performance parts? And this is uh, the trick uh, to characterize part properties and to to find the the, the right way to uh, to correlate it to the to the powder properties. And this is a, a multi-level concern. It's not only what one one characteristic that goes to uh, to to the other. Uh, usually, it's more it's more difficult than 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 that. 
So I would say that unfortunately, it's not straightforward uh, to 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 start from a, a polymer that you know and to do it uh, to make it uh, available for uh, AM technologies. Um, but the, the, once again, uh, collaboration is key because uh, what I can highlight is that we don't develop materials uh, on our own uh, at Arkema without any collaboration, with without any understanding of the technology that will be used to process the material. Uh, and this collaboration uh, is the key to have a success between the, ma the printer manufacturer, the man material manufacturer. In the end, more globally, when we talk about digital form, it's like also uh, about uh, having the, all the tools uh, to, to, to be able that parts can be, can, can be produced uh, with the specific designs and also with the, the, the post-processing that is needed. Uh, but uh, in the end, powder bed fusion technologies uh, are technically demanding and they, re they re require basically a specific product development. Yeah, uh, thank you for, for elaborating that. I think it's it's important to, really important to understand for people that a, a P11 that's injection molded is not the same P11, probably chemically and from a from a final performance that you'll see uh, at the end part of an of an additive uh, application. Chemically speaking, this is still PA11, so this this is always uh, the, the polyamide 11 and the same uh, bio-based uh, structure and so on. But definitely between a, a pellet and the, and the powder, uh, things are very different. And the, the way to to, to process uh, and to start from the monomer to 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 get the polymer in different ways, uh, definitely this is not the okay. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Agree. But let me let me ask you more question though. So if we if we talk about we talked about PA11 a lot now. In the space of digital foam, what what other materials uh, are are gaining interest today that are opening up a new a new space of applications in additive? Uh, I'm also uh, very interested in more more rigid applications, uh, but but could you give us an overview of some of the the, the more interesting uh, developments that you guys have been working on, but also some of the increasing demands that we see in the market? Yeah, you mentioned rigid materials. Uh, let me start also with uh, elastomeric materials because this is uh, where we see also uh, uh, trends and interest uh, from uh, from users. Uh, basically, elastomers uh, are valuable in uh, when using lattice structures because uh, everywhere where you can create dampening effect uh, for comfort zones, seats, automotive, for bicycles, uh, or protective things like uh, helmets. Uh, definitely elastomeric materials, they, they, they play a role. Um, it's also a way, sometimes fashion needs also uh, elastomers for designs. Uh, and also uh, people that are using already soft materials, uh, they could use also AM for rapid prototyping with soft materials. It's not only about, uh, always about rigid, uh, but in terms of rigid material, definitely we see, we see, we see traction because of the people wanting to uh, change the designs. And once again, your initial question about inverse design is, is critical because everywhere where, where there is lightweight, uh, there is possibility of uh, improving uh, the way uh, we create uh, the parts. Um, it means also smarter designs for energy absorption. Uh, I think, Nick, you mentioned that uh, earlier in the beginning. It means also uh, optimizing system effic efficiency, uh, which could be key for uh, for turbines, for instance, uh, in energy uh, in the energy domain. And for us, as the material supplier, um, I think there are 
different ways to, to try to grow the cake because in the end, it's all, always about finding new application and grow the cake of uh, additive manufacturing. Uh, the first one is uh, by decreasing the, part, the, the cost per part because what we want to do is uh, to enable, economically speaking, uh, new application to grow. And big cost of the part now is still in the, in the cost per part via the recycling and the refresh rate that you have for, for powders. So enabling higher recyclability in uh, rigid materials uh, is a key trend and that will def definitely uh, benefit to, uh, to, to, digital, uh, to digital form applications. And the second one is to grow the cake, the cake by enabling uh, uh, more applications and address new markets, which means also uh, development of new materials uh, with specific properties uh, to fit like uh, for electronics, for railway, uh, where you need specific certifications, for instance. Uh, and in that space, it goes from uh, high-strength plastics to specific conductive, conductive grades, fire retardant uh, solutions. Uh, and in AM, definitely, uh, one more comment is that we are still very limited in terms of uh, materials compared to what you have in uh, injection molding uh, for P11 mm -hmm. in, uh, in pellets. Uh, you, you may have 100 different grades and really uh, different compounds with specific additives or specific formulations uh, that can be used uh, used by injection molding. And for, for additive manufacturing, uh, if you have 10 grades, it's already, uh, it's already, uh, uh, it's already very important. So find be, knowing that the industry is still very young compared to, to the other the, uh, traditional manufacturing methods uh, is, is great for us because it means that we, we have to innovate, we can innovate a lot and, and find uh, new, new ways of uh, addressing new markets. Uh, but yeah, there is a, lo a lot of, uh, of space for materials to be, to be developed there. Maybe maybe one one more comment. I think it's about sustainability. And once again, it's mm -hmm. like sustainability globally because of uh, when you redesign things, you can also use uh, less material. But in 3D, in a sense, which is always compared to a subtractive manufacturing method, uh, it's supposed to decrease the amount of waste uh, and materials with uh, uh, low carbon footprint, bio-based uh, background, and so on. Uh, definitely, they are uh, clearly key for the future. 100%. Uh, I think you touched on a lot of key drivers for uh, for digital form applications and I think all of us are on here today in order to to increase awareness of the of the potential, uh, increase awareness also of some of the challenges that still exist today because I think inflated expectations are one of the worst things uh, you can have when when moving into such a project. Uh, so I think it's important to to mention these these as well. One thing we haven't touched on yet that I think is is super crucial is obviously post-processing. And what's interesting is just because post-processing comes last in the process step doesn't mean it comes last in, in consideration for your final application. And I think that's uh, something that you, Mike, uh, and the Dimension team uh, sometimes struggle with as well, is that it's such a crucial step to a final application. All the applications we've now seen in the past year, you know, we've had uh, Nadine from Wilson on here with arguably probably one of the most Famous applications in the industry, uh, the Wilson Prototype Basketball. We've had Bauer on here with also a visual digital phone. All of these applications wouldn't be the applications they are without the right post-processing post processing uh, technologies. But can you take us a bit through the importance of post-processing in digital phone and what, what are some of those key technologies that people need to be aware of 
a need to consider when developing a an application. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, thank you for having us uh, on here, Fabian. It's um, it's always kind of uh, exciting for me to be on a panel, something like this, where I take a lot of joy kind of sitting back and listening because coming into this over a decade ago, it is super easy to create Lattice in anything you want, but it becomes an entirely different story when you want to be purposeful with that Lattice. Mm -hmm. um, and Nick and I have talked about this many years ago and some of my background was, you know, on consumer product, uh, footwear, protective gears. And it, it kind of goes down to that very first question is what do we want this to do? Um, you just mentioned two really exciting projects, right? We have a helmet and we have a basketball or an airless prototype, two entirely different needs. Um, one needs a dampening effect and one needs rebound effect in a different way, right? So we have to immediately start thinking. Um, it's not just about the material that's coming from someone like Arkema. Um, it is how are we going to use that lattice structure to actually influence what we're trying to get out of that part. As it's already been alluded to a few times, the post-processing step is usually thought about last. And it's not by any fault. It's just because it's the last in the process chain. And it's generally been handwork for most of the existence of additive or traditional manufacturing. It's been a lot of handwork or skill sets that has become more automated over the last years. Ourselves, of course, have, our, our company have been able to create ways to automate some of this Um and it's also created ways where now we've exposed some of the challenges that we see early on. Um, one of the first things that I've seen in my experience on when I first started getting into like the elastomerics on consumer products, especially in footwear, was what happens when we put a beam directly into a really thin skin. Um, and forget the idea of the, the thermal issues you might see on the printing side. It's now we go to color it. And we hand it off to, to a designer or the next stakeholder. And we have two different colors because, well, we didn't know why at the point, right? Um, over many, many years, we started to understand what's actually happening here. And it all has to do with how are we positioning it? How are we actually influencing that lattice into an adjacent location, whether it be a thin skin or maybe it's a really, really tight lattice that morphs into a looser lattice cell structure? Um, or a larger cell size, for example. Um, then we have to play, how are we going to print it? To what orientation do we print it? How close to another object can we print it? And then one of the most fun things that Dave and I have spent a lot of time on is how many can we put into a build and have a successful part? Forget cost here, because that's just going to hurt us when we really realize it at the end. Um, how many can we really put into a build and still maintain that throughout the entire build? whether it be on a, a, a P3 system or P7 system, now we have another influencing factor. And we haven't even gotten to post-processing yet. Um, post-processing is really where we just expose a lot of this because there's, there's color adhesion, which is one of our steps, and then there's smoothing, both of which are thermal processes. So we're introducing that polymer into another thermal exposure. And then there's a chemical binding that takes place in the coloring. If we have different density properties, then color is going to adhere slightly different. Or if we have a really thin structure versus a thick structure, the light's going to transfer slightly different through that part. So visually, we'll interpret color different. Um, and these are all things that we identify at the end, and it becomes too late. And this is kind of where I really enjoy sitting here because 
a lot of the times when I first get onto a phone call with a customer or potential application, it's very much understanding where in the prototype phase are they? Mm-hmm. Um, and how can we start that, not to say over again, but how can we kind of push it back so we start to realize what we do with Nick's team will influence what happens from Dave's team and then changes how we have to attack it from my side. Um, and at the end of the day, of course, the, the stakeholder or the designer, whoever is that last person on the inside, um, they have to understand that and they have to work through it. And kind of Dave's analogy coming from the restaurant days quite a bit. I love it um, because it really is just a bunch of ingredients. Right. And everyone wants to order that that perfect meal. Um, but you might have to use 10 different ingredients depending on where you are or how you want to approach it. Um so yeah, the, the post-processing step, um, there's a lot of different influencing factors to it. Um, the most important things is kind of understanding how do we create a more natural or organic transfer of the energy that we see throughout the entire process. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember having a conversation many, many years ago with a, a material chemical expert, and I'm by no means one of those. And when I first started to say, hey, why, are, why can't I smooth this part? And it's the same exact part, I think, to this one. And the first question is, he said, well, how many different processes are you going through? And we thought about it. Okay, well, we make the material at this temperature, then it transfers or ships somewhere. Then it gets printed at this temperature, cools down to another temperature, gets depowdered at a different temperature with another influence of material on it. Then it is handheld sometimes, hopefully with gloves or in a good area. Then it goes into maybe a smoothing process where it's elevating and decreasing, elevating, decreasing temperatures. Then it sits and then it goes into a color process where it goes back through another temperature. And as I'm explaining this, I'm watching the almost disappointment coming from this material chemist's view of, my gosh, what have you done to that polymer? Over this many exposures, ups and downs, ups and downs. And um, it just kind of became this roller coaster of, we really need to start thinking at the end to influence the beginning. So it's, yeah, it's been exciting to kind of be on my side of it because I've played on all ends of this and yeah, now I, yeah. I, I get to have the last push on it sometimes. Yeah. In the past, you were right at the beginning and now you're at the, at the exact opposite end. What, what I do think helps people to develop design applications is to truly also understand the processes uh, that are involved. I think uh, most engineers now know how a laser uh, powder bed fusion process works. Um, they they understand oftentimes the different types of data structures. I, I don't believe they really understand the post-processing uh, technologies or don't spend really time. Could you spend a couple of minutes explaining to us, especially those core, two core technologies of, of dyeing and smoothing, what, what really happens in, in the system and what is what, what happens to the polymer? Yeah, absolutely. I'll actually start one step before that that a lot of people forget about is, is depowdering. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe the mm-hmm. simplest step, but it's actually one of the more influential parts um, because most shops around the country or even around the world, they're, they're using manual labor and it's very effective. Of course, in many ways, you have a lot of skilled folks that can do it, but the challenge becomes we stop thinking about, are we just depowdering it or are we potentially changing the surface slightly? Um, and one of these big things is, are we using glass media to depowder? Are we using ceramic? Are we using dry ice? What are different methods of depowdering uh, that all have a different factor of how we influence the surface? Glass, probably the most commonly used across the, the globe here. 
Um, extremely effective because it can break down, creates smaller particles, cleans better. But the one thing that we forget about is that it also creates fragments that could potentially embed themselves into the part. Mm-hmm. Usually that doesn't mean anything for most projects or basic R&D stuff. But if we color that uh, or smooth it, the glass doesn't smooth and the glass doesn't take color. So now we have a new influencing factor that generally is overlooked a lot of the times. Um, so one of our core technologies is, is around depowdering, and it was, it's really a, a simplified version of um, how do we minimize human risk or human error into depowdering. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's mm-hmm. fixed nozzles, a rotating drum to at least manipulate parts so we can get cleaning in all areas. But it's really about the distance and duration of blastings of media onto parts. Um, and it's really just creating uniformity. And that's all it's about. Um, and then moving it into the, the next two main technologies, as you mentioned, um, color, we'll start there. Uh, color is an amazing world, right? It's, you've got your, your bread and butter of your red, greens, blues that uh, you can pretty much get down at any grocery store or across the, the country here. Um, but if you want to have a repeatable color, um, you have to really start thinking about right, what is the recipe in this color? Um, then we talk about, as we said uh, before, something like uh, uh, the Bauer helmet or the Wilson basketball. What is the application doing? It's being bounced on a wood floor hundreds of hundreds of thousands of times, uh, full life, right? But we're talking hundreds of times. A helmet has impact, has sweat. Um, all these things could impact how that color is maintained on the part. Um, so traditional spray painting methods or, or basic dip dye methods, um, they may not last. Uh, that, that color may come off of it because it's really just staining the part or it's an added shell on top. Um, so the way that we do color is is through an actual um, color adhesion. So it's a color binding to the polymer links themselves. It goes all the way back to Pierre's world of what is the polymer that we're working with? How many linkages do we have? How is it affected in the print? Um, it gives us more ability of can we bind that color pigment onto that part? Um, generally speaking, We'll go anywhere from about 175 to 250 microns into the part where color is uh, adhered onto the polymers. Um, This is really important because it allows us to get through some of these 10,000, 100,000 cycle tests that a lot of the industries use. It also gives us the ability to kind of get into markets like the automotive world where UV exposure is a really big risk. And it minimizes some of the effect of color bleed over time or color wear over time. The importance of repeatable colors is key when we talk to some of these bigger customers, because a lot of them have their own seasonal color palettes. And a lot of the times they have color experts that speak in a different language. Um, But almost every single one of them utilize a color chip of some sort that is not 3D printed. It is almost always a standardized color Pantone chip or a a code of some sort of hex code or RAL code um, that doesn't truly translate just to any 3D printed part. Um, to Pierre's world of the PA11s, whether it's a PA12, whether it has whiteners in it or not, that standard Pantone chip is great, but it we have to take an entirely different course of action based on what the material is. Um, and then, then Nick and Dave can jump in and start talking about the influencing factors of how that lattice could affect it they can talk about the print and the build capacity. Um, all these things are huge factors because uh, the, the unfortunate, sometimes the truth of it is we might have a standard um, 
PA12 off of, uh, of an SLS printer that is maybe an EOS-based printer. And then we have another comparable SLS printer. That same PA12 will likely have some variance in color, even though the exact same color is used, just because we have different effects from laser powers, energy that's being put into the part. Um, so it kind of goes down to true recipes and how we actually have to work with those. Um, we've we've come up with ways to kind of minimize some of that risk over time by creating cartridges that are based on scanning using RFID tags to scan a cartridge. So it minimizes that human interaction of how we're creating the recipe of color. Um, it's it's pretty darn good. Um, we can create repeatable results across the globe on various machines and at various altitudes or humidity control areas too. So as long as we're within range or a spec, um, generally speaking, we can meet just about the the colors that are requested um, in a repeatable way across different platforms. Now, we'll definitely see some areas of challenge. Um, my my One of my favorite backstories is with the footwear side of um, we started coming around. We were working with an early elastomeric material with the EOS printers and some other SLS printers. And I remember very distinctively, we had five or six very good colors that we liked, and they were all kind of on the darker range. And we went to the designers, we walked through it. We said, all right, these are the ones we can work with. You can do just about everything within these ranges as long as you don't go lighter or grays. Designer chose gray right off the bat. Um, And then we went through this several month process that we joked around and called it, it was the 50 shades of gray of 3D printing because we could never truly hone in on it. And it was a footwear product. So we were always comparing a left and a right, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, so it became a challenge for sure. And it was always a joking thing. And this is many, many years ago. We still uh, kind of hint on it. Um, but yeah, so color is, is definitely an interesting topic. Um, you know, there's, we've created ways to help, uh, as I said, mitigate that risk of, of, uh, um, deviation between parts, whether types of materials, um, as we get into smoothing, the general concept of smoothing is quite simple. Um, we're, basically using a solvent. In our case, we're using a benzoyl alcohol um, that is uh, basically vaporized and released into a chamber where the parts are suspended. That vapor then creates condensation on the parts, allowing those molecules to kind of micro-dissolve and reallocate themselves in a tighter form. And then that vapor is removed. Based on the material and what we're trying to do, we influence it many different ways. We can either change the temperatures, we could change the Um, the introduction to solvent, we can change the duration, the times, many different levers that we can pull, but it's all about creating uh, exposure of solvent and temperature onto a part. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is create a sealed part that visually looks glossy and very smooth, but really we're just creating tighter bonds of the molecules where it's now a washable or more usable surface. Um, The inherent side effects of this is that it becomes washable. So now we can talk about things like medical applications because we can clean easier. Mm -hmm. Um, It becomes a more appealing part in the consumer world, right? Now we have things like the the Bauer helmet where we have contact to skin. Um, We, it's more comfortable sometimes compared to a rough or fuzzy part, for example. Um, And then areas like the, the Wilson basketball, we actually had to influence that smoothing effect quite a bit to more mimic a hand feel of a, of an already existing product. Um, so we have to really play with some of these levers and um, it's all based on what the material is 
and the influencing factor of how the lattice comes together to create that generic shape or the organic shape. And then how do we print it? Are we putting three or four of them in a build or a hundred and a few, right? Um, it really plays a factor on how much thermal energy is put into that part. That in turn translates into how much energy we can really affect it by. So it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting process chain, but yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of how they work. No, thank you. Thank you for that, Mike. I think it's it's so important to uh, to talk about uh, these technologies and give people a better understanding on, on, on how they work. Nevertheless, we always have to start with a digital file, a CAD file. So back to you, Nick. Now that we talked about uh, we talked about materials, we talked about post processing. Uh, Dave talked about you know we we even within the in this case polymer laser, but a bit fusion process. We also need to find our recipe and develop our process parameters for certain materials. And maybe we can touch on that in a, in a second, Dave. Uh, but Nick, how do you take all that into account in the design phase, and how are you helping? developers to hone in on all of these aspects uh, from the beginning? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we kind of think of it almost as like in the more traditional manufacturing sense of tooling, like what we kind of commonly internally call digital tooling, right? How do we develop a standard operating procedure that takes into account the entire digital thread of everything that's going on, right? You know, what are the parameters of the lattice that's being used? First of all, what is, what is the, the, base material that we're using, what are those properties, what are the design parameters, what are the print parameters, and what are the post-processing parameters. And it really it creates that formula. That's the, to go back to Dave's analogy again, that's the sandwich, right? Um, we're taking all these ingredients, we're tuning them, we're getting them just the way they need to be, and then we're trying to kind of lock them in, right, and say this is how it's done, and now we have a repeatable recipe that we can go back and, and start to use. And I think that's a really important part with uh, 3D printing is because it's like a double-edged sword, right? We have all of a sudden, we have all this design freedom. We have no molds, no tooling. We can make whatever we want. Awesome, right? But at the same time, the repeatability factor then kind of really shoots up in terms of challenge. And so having that digital thread, having that digital tooling and tracking all of those parameters is really important. So at General Lattice, we're really focused on developing these sort of meta materials, right, um, that are, are meant to replace existing materials in the market today. They utilize lattices and the advantages that they bring from a performance standpoint. Um, and so when we go and develop those, we work directly with the OEMs. So we're working directly with the material manufacturer, we're working with the hardware manufacturer and the post-processing to build out that digital thread so that when we present data and information about that meta material to the customer, um, you know, we kind of already have that kind of consolidated and defined in a way that, that we can start to ensure repeatability. Um, and, and it's also when you look at production, too, you have to think about the supply chain side of things. You have to think about, you know, who is the vendor that's actually scaling this up and working with those people. So it's it's truly end to end kind of needs to be coordinated and organized in order to get that customer, that repeatability, ensure the quality and do it at a, at a scale that, that is actually, you know, uh, of size. That's super helpful. You know, it's, it's important to bring all of these steps together in, in the beginning and having a, a tool that helps, helps people to look at it from an inverse design perspective. Dave, you've worked with various clients now developing applications uh, in that space. How do you start? If I come to you now, 
we're all wearing headphones. Let's let's say you know we all have a soft, uh, somewhat comfortable uh, foam piece here. I want to print that now. I want to uh, launch an additive snack uh, headphone uh, line. How do I approach it, and how do I then engage also with uh, with Nick, with Arkema, with uh, with Mike? What, what's the best way to approach it? Yeah, really good question. Uh, I think Mike touched on this already is sort of the intention or the purpose. And sometimes that intention or purpose can evolve or they think they know that's what they want. We want a 3D printed, you know, headphone foam for a, a very radical experience, right? Or a new type of a product. But really, you, then you think about it from a technical perspective, you know, what is it you're wanting that to actually do? And how could the factors that additive that a, that a digital foam solution can bring influence those. So if it's sound reduction, can you now understand how a lattice structure can influence a different kind of acoustic properties? The skin contact, Mike talk, kind of talked about that. Okay, now you're going to have direct skin contact. Uh, I'm not a tissue expert, but the way that you're ear receives contact compared to, let's say, your chin wearing a helmet, right? It's going to be very different. So the approach can be, I think, uh, a good conversation of listening and question asking. And then I think also sometimes you have to be a little bit rigid on our side about what's possible. It's easy to say yes, have that first meeting end, and then go back internally and say, I know we said yes, but can we do this? Uh, Which I think was maybe some of the early uh, you know, earlier years ago type of, you don't want to lose that opportunity. Right. And so I think we're getting a little more mature and sometimes the answer is, uh, no, or the answer is, uh, we would need to design and, uh, develop these types of solutions, which can be a challenging conversation depending on how much is needed, uh, from a personnel, you know, resources funding perspective. I think that's another thing that this group needs, you know, that this group is working towards is making that leap into it or making that journey into it easier and more financially reachable. Inherently, everybody's all the work they're doing is cutting edge and um, innovative, but it can't be cost uh, prohibitive in that in that sense. So that's where, again, this can we create solutions? Can we be can we become more automated? So those, like I said, everybody's question is often an individual pursuit of an application. So it's you, you have to be really good listeners, but then, and also in some ways, see what it is you have available and some, just have some good, honest conversations, I think is helpful. And I think it's also, you'll see growth in a little more of the ability to share publicly information. So uh, I think, you know, there's more dissertations being done at an academic level, more data sharing. So, you know, the more that we can make this information available, more people can think about it, digest it uh, and add to it. So I think that's also a big step. Um, but as this panel demonstrates, there's two perspectives of all these engineering variables. One is it's 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 anything can be tuned. And so anything's achievable or you may be listening to this going. It's incredibly overwhelming. Uh, there's so many variables, so many steps. And so I think um, both, you know, both of those are true. And this is just how we will get better at what we do. And, you know, through incredible applications and opportunities such as the basketball, huge leaps are made uh, in this space. And I think everybody benefits as a result. 
Yeah, and I think you know we we recently had uh, we had theory from from Bauer Hockey uh, on his podcast as well, and and I think he shared a similar story, which was you just, yeah, you just need to have a lot of conversations with all these different players, but most importantly, really understand the technologies. And I think today, um, really, my hope is that we we were able to shed a bit more light into each subsection of the of the process chain. We talk a lot about the printing process. Now I don't think we need to repeat it within within this episode, right? But obviously, there's a lot of process parameters that also within the printing process we can manipulate and have to manipulate, especially for lattice structures when it comes to how we how we uh, run the laser, what layer thickness we run, what orientation we 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 print the part in, in order to get all these repeatable end use results that that also you mentioned uh, mentioned Mike. Before we jump off, uh, I am very curious to to hear from from you guys. Which industries should listen to this episode? We know that consumer guys are already pretty deeply looking into into digital form technologies, but but what other industries should be listening to this and should seriously consider uh, adopting digital foam for for some of their applications? Do you guys have any thoughts? Yeah, I think the medical device industry is like a huge, huge opportunity. I think when you look at again, kind of a comment I made earlier about you know, ingredients for success, right? Um, you know, how can we make a truly better product? And when you think about med device, you think about personalization, right? Which really takes advantage of the design freedom that uh, AM provides, as well as the digital foam development. And how can we make better metamaterials that are more bone-like, right? That accept mm-hmm. bone growth better. You know, how can we make the, the patient, um, feel better at the end of the day. And I think that's a huge opportunity. Obviously, there's you know more barriers to entry with FDA approval, regulations, stuff like that. But um, you know, what is one of the biggest users of AM technology today? It's the dental industry, right? And it's because it's personal, you can easily personalize. It's you know got the right build size for a lot of um, you know components. So I think med devices is, is a huge opportunity uh, for growth within the AM industry for sure. Mm-hmm especially for polymer uh, digital foam applications, which we, we don't see too many uh, in, uh, in medical today, I would say. Um, but certainly, certainly interesting, especially because, you know, we have skin contact approved medical devices uh, in, in polymers. So yeah, very, very good point. What else? Any, anybody have some, some other interesting industries? Maybe just in medical, one comment, uh, there are maybe not that much applications for digital form right now, but we see definitely the the trend of find, finding lightweight solutions. Like if you're talking about helmets, like cranial remolding helmets for babies, definitely you need, uh, you need it to be comfortable uh, with the sweat, with the aeration and everything. So changing the, the design, maybe not to lattice structures, but to something similar, uh, which exhibits the same performances and the same comfort. Uh, this has value. And going to this on uh, lightweight, once again, I think aerospace and defense uh, is definitely, uh, uh, they are setting trends in uh, lightweight, lightweighting because uh, they need to, 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 to do light, lighter designs, smarter designs, uh, both to optimize the, uh, the efficiency of the systems, but also just because of the uh, the decarbonization roadmap, uh, we are all in, uh, and lightweight is part of it. So uh, they are they are really uh, setting trends in this uh, in this domain. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned helmets, right? We have hockey helmets, but we have uh, soldiers that still run around 
in very hot environments with uh, conventional helmets. Cer certainly a very interesting application that, as far as I, uh, I know, uh, has not been pursued yet. Yeah, I was actually just going to comment on that exact thing. I mean, thinking of uh, to that first question, right, of why, what is the application intended to do? And if we think of the Bauer helmet, one of the first reasons was it was about creating airflow to mm -hmm. drop the temperature of the athlete. As you just mentioned, with soldiers out there in the field, um, cranial helmets for infants, for example, helping create better passageways for air. Taking those same thoughts and we start moving into industries like the aerospace industry, like the agriculture industry, um, we have to really think about what else does Lattice do besides just create dampening and rebound? That's that's the consumer market, right? Those are no-brainers. But we start looking at, are we creating passages to drop temperature? It really changes the, the idea quite a bit. Um, so for me, those, I mean, medical for sure and aerospace, definitely the two largest verticals. Uh, but I think we can broaden the horizon quite a bit with, with an automated process and lattices. Yeah, I'll add just a little bit there. So actually, um, to round the Foam Expo, which is the show focused around foam, and it's every year. And uh, it was interesting because I think really where, you know, that's where you need to go and learn about different ways foam are being applied. Uh, and I think everyone's touched on uh, a few more spaces, but I've had. People contact me about uh, fil uh, filtration applications. So that's the way uh, foam is being used. And you know, when you when you go there to the you know to the foam expo, you certainly see a lot of what we've already talked about. But on on the fringes is where you see some interesting uses for it. And I think that's where it's helpful to know that we've at least got the attention of those spaces. Um, but there's still there's still some leaps to be had regarding either like, can you print that fine or can you provide a, a, a sound damping or um, other aspects? And that's where I think, you know, it may not just be SLS solutions that can provide that, right? There's other types of technologies that can print finer, but still everything about just taking a material, assigning a lattice in a digital space and printing that. That's quite interesting to think, you know, you see, I've seen some images of, you know, things balancing on fingers and those types of really like micro lattices. So I think that's that's an interesting space. Um, but then, you know, as as the SLS technology grows, uh, the the fine detail resolution. Uh, so as powder particles get smaller and laser uh, focus uh, diameters get more uh, precise, it does start to open up those application spaces as well. So. I'm hopeful to see it go into other spaces because I think in some ways there's a broader use or a more higher volume use. And that just drives more innovation um, for all of us. Sure. Sure. I think the, the most important factor is to also make this less daunting for, for people to look into because it, it can certainly feel daunting to engage in a development project. If you don't have any additive experience and you consider all these steps that we talked about, and uh, all of you really help the industry to reduce those barriers uh, on, a, on a daily basis. So thank you all for, for sharing your, your expertise with us today. Uh, thank you all for also giving us some insights into your technologies, into your developments. I think it definitely helps people to understand the, the process chain and the value chain way better. And also understand it's not potentially that challenging as, uh, as I may have thought. Uh, so Thank you all for, for being on Additive Snack today. Thank you, Fabien. Thank you. Thank you, Dave, Thanks, for the mental picture of the Besson. 
it will stay. <laughs> Of the, of the croissant for, uh, for you. Yeah. It's a sandwich over here, uh, a, a croissant in, uh, in France, but, uh, yeah, to our listeners, I really do hope that this episode gave you a better understanding of the, of the full process chain of the complexities and of the opportunities of, of digital foam. I think it really highlighted that the, the additive manufacturing, uh, industry is not just about the printing process. It's about all the players all the pre and the post processing that needs to happen. And um, it's about the, the visionaries, like the folks here on the show today, that really help us drive the industry forward and bring visions and innovative ideas uh, to light. So thank you all for, uh, for uh, tuning in. Uh, make sure to subscribe to Additive Snack to not miss next week's episode. And uh, I'm Fabian Allerfeld, your host, and I'll see you next time.